All right, let's, let's, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we continue this journey through 1 Timothy, this letter to Timothy, as he pastors this church at Ephesus, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us today about, what you, about how we are to do life as an extended family, how we are to engage with each other, how we are to surround each other, how we are to encourage, challenge, call out the best in each other, rebuke in a loving way if needed. Show us, Lord, what, what, what uh, goes from the context of Ephesus and that church and what, they're, what they were going through, what moves forward into our own time and our own place and our own context and the things that we are dealing with and the things that we are engaging in and struggling with. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out the things that you are calling us to do and to be to be a community, to be an extended family together. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that, you're, that we would be aware of your presence and that we would be mindful of what your spirit is calling uh, forth in all of us. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. So we are almost finished with wrapping up our blueprint Series. We have been going through the New Testament book of, of 1 Timothy, and we've talked about this idea that, in a way, 1 Timothy is a blueprint for how you build the church of Jesus Christ. And so we have been talking about, you know, the idea that any good building, any good, um, like, church building or any building has a good blueprint. That if you don't have the blueprint uh, drawn right or accurately, what ends up happening is the building is off. You know, like we talked about a couple weeks ago that in one of my, in one of my favorite, well, maybe it's not my favorite movie, but one of the funniest movies I've ever seen is, is the, uh, Spinal Tap. And, and they draw on this thing, little thing of like 16 inches to build their Stonehenge. And they were one in 16 feet. And, and they're on the stage and this little tiny... Stonehenge comes down it's like small you know and they're like what happened and they're like well you gave us this blueprint for 16 inches and we're like we meant 16 feet and so it shows that if the blueprints are wrong the building's going to be wrong and so what does it look like as a church to have a blueprint on how we build this thing and I don't mean the building I mean the people the way we do life together. And so we talked about this idea of starting with where everybody starts. On a building, you don't start on the third floor. You start in the foundation, the base. And if you don't get the base right, everything goes crazy. Um, my mother-in-law would say it's cattywampus, whatever that means. But that's a word that means like crooked. And you can see, you can see if you go into a house, if there's foundational problems, you see cracks in the walls. You know? 
And so we talked about the base, the foundation of the church is Jesus. And we have to build everything that we do on Jesus. His, his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. It's the Jesus we find in Scripture. It's not the Jesus of our own making. Because a lot of times, if we're honest, we can, we can find a lot of encounters and a lot of pictures. Just, just put, you know... Jesus into your Google image search and man, some of those Jesus I don't recognize. You know, there's the, there's the NRA Jesus who's teaching the little kid how to shoot a gun. You know, there's the, there's the 1960s hippie Jesus. You know, there's, there, we, we, so often we've made Jesus in their own image. And so I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Jesus revealed in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the Jesus we're talking about. And then we, we begin to build on that foundation of Jesus. And we've talked about uh, the idea of prayer and love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then we talked about the idea of that we need to learn. You know, we talked about in, in, in um, chapter 3, it talks about women should learn and we how, how we said, like, it's a call to all of us that if we want to teach, that we got to learn and grow up in the way of Jesus um, before given the ability to lead. And last week we talked about the idea that there isn't this divide of the sacred and the secular, that it's all, if done in thanksgiving and prayer, it's all sacred. All of it is sp- sacred, and we need spiritual formation and development to see that. It doesn't just happen. We have to be spiritually trained in such a way. And then we talked about the idea that our, our, our tongues can either speak life and wholeness and healing, or we can speak life, we can speak death. Um, and how that is part of our life as followers of Jesus. How, how um, Jesus calls us into this way of doing life together. That we build each other up. You know, we build this building together, and part of that is that we build it up. And, and most importantly, we come back to this idea that Jesus is Savior of all. Like, at that day and that age, we talked a lot about all the competing claims to, to Savior and Lord and Messiah. They had Caesar. They had Artemis. These competing claims of who was truly divine and Lord of all. And this little tiny community in the midst of this culture was saying, no, no, it's not Caesar. It's not Artemis. It's Jesus is Lord of all. Over everything. Over the Greek Parthenon. Over Caesar. Over whatever we put up in the place of Lord. He's over all of it. And so now we come to... Another layer, if you will, another brick uh, layer as we build this building. And I think all too often what we've done is when we go to the scripture, uh, influenced by our Western ideas and Western culture and Western mindset, is we take these scriptures and we find where it says you and we go, oh, me. And the, and the New Testament 
was not written from a Western mindset. It was, it was Eastern. And so when you see the word you, it means you all. Youans, or, or like, you know, you put in your own, like, like, put in like you all and youans and use guys and whatever else, you know, depending where you end up, you know. Um, and so it's plural. And so when we go to the scriptures, we've got to think in terms of plurality, in terms of not just me, but all of us. Am I saying that there is no place for individuality? No, but I am saying that we've got to read it as a whole, as a community. Seeing everything that we've been talking about from the lens of an extended family, an oikos, which is this Greek word. We've talked about this word before, but it's a Greek word which means household, an established family. It was a base unit for the, fam, for like the, for the whole society in, in, in Greek and Roman culture. The foundation. And so what ended up happening a lot of times is when the, the church grew, it grew through the confines of an oikos. An oikos came to know Christ, and it changed that whole household. And so on and so forth. In fact, actually, as I was saying, the, the early church began to function very much in that same idea, oikos. When they said brothers and sisters they really began to say, no, the church is our family. In fact, actually, one of the accusations of the early church was, if you didn't, have never heard this, is that they were committing incense because they were calling each other's brothers and sisters. And so those outside were like, what? Because But they were saying, no, God is our father, Jesus is our brother. That means we are brothers and sisters. Now, I know every time we talk about family, we begin to bring up all kinds of stuff, right? Like, all of our families have issues, have brokenness, have struggle, have pain. At the same time, we still, there are still beautiful things within all of our families. And so we're going to look, look through that lens here today of extended family of Oikos that the church is that way. Because otherwise, we're like, kind of like, we're not sure what this text says for you and I today. Um, and so we talk about, we're going to talk about chapter five and this oikos. So we lay this idea that we function as an extended family. And so the first thing we see is, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Right there. Right from the beginning of chapter 5. Paul is, is using four familiar terms. Familiar terms. Father, brother, mother, sister. Treat each other as if the older men are your fathers. The younger men as your brothers. Treat older women as your mothers and younger women as sisters. It is, it, is, it is really getting at that root that we are to live and treat each other in this very real way. If that you are in the body of Christ, then there's fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And not like hierarchical, well, father, mother, up here. 
but together. And so here, how are we to do life together as an extended family? Well, first it says, we are not to rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he is your father. Now, I won't throw anyone else under the table. I'll, I'll go first. As an older man, ugh, I don't like to say that, but okay. As an older man, treat me like a father. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, does, is Paul saying, never confront me, never challenge my faith, never rebuke me if I'm out of line? That's not what he's saying. Although it, sound, it could almost sound like it. If I am veering away from the way of Jesus, I'm hoping that you would exhort me back to follow Jesus. If I'm off, if I do something, if I say something, I want this family to lovingly pull me back to the where I should be. The word that Paul is using for the word rebuke is a word that means to strike at. Harshly. With anger. You know, we talked about the idea that, uh, that men were fighting. Not physically, but they were fighting over theological issues. You're not supposed to fight over these issues. Pray together. Discern together. It doesn't mean... To encourage each other, to edify, to upbuild, to set right. And so we are called to exhort each other. We, yes, rebuke, but in love and gentleness and grace. We're not to strike at each other, attack with our words. Remember 1 Timothy 4. Do not let anyone look down on you who are young, but set an example. One of the, one of the things we set an example for is in speech. How do we use our speech? And so, for those who would consider themselves older, as a father figure, if you will, how can you use your words to encourage the older father figures to follow after Jesus? To to have older men have the foundation in the life of Jesus. And then to be open to hearing, man, there is a crack in part of that foundation. And to have somebody have the, that courage to lovingly say, hey, I noticed this about you. That's not easy. But if you, have a, if, if you as an older father figure seeking to follow Jesus and really follow Jesus, like it, it'll hurt. But if done in love, you'll be like, yeah, wow, you know what? At first, it'd be like, what, who, who do you think you are? But then afterwards, it might be like, yeah, you know what? Thank you so much. I was blind to that. I didn't see that. I want to follow Jesus better, and I'm sorry that this part is off. This found, part of the foundation is off a little bit. We are to treat younger men in the community as brothers, partners in the kingdom, work that God calls us to. Think about... I mean, so if you have a brother, I don't know what your relationships are like with your brother. I mean, all I can tell you is my relationship with my brother. And it's not the best. It's not bad. It's not horrible. But it's not like, you know, like the word brotherhood? It's not a brotherhood. 
Like, and that's what I think Paul is getting at. Like, like a brotherhood who's pulling on the rope together. Who's pulling in the same way together. Who's seeing something beyond ourselves and we're working to the same goal together. That's what I think he's talking about. A brotherhood. It's like this idea, there's this sociological idea called communitas. It's not just community. But it's when a group of people have a bigger goal in mind that they're pulling towards, they're working towards. What usually happens is that group becomes bonded in such a way that they'll die for each other. Like every sports movie you've ever seen is communitas, right? They got challenges, they got struggles, but they're going to pull together and they're going to be like, we have something bigger. But the end result of going after that bigger thing is this community is like strong, tight. They love each other. They'll go to war for each other. It says, treat older women as mothers. How do you treat your mother? With respect and love. As if, she, as if these ladies were your own mother. Because in a real way, they are. They mother us. They mother the community. They help us. They encourage us. They love us. And then we are to treat younger women as sisters with purity. Conduct towards younger women should be without um, like problems, without like issues, above reproach. Encourage, support, build up, pray, and love these women as sisters. Treat them if you are if they're your real flesh and blood sisters. Treat them in purity and speech and how you view them, everything. Now, I, and I realize every time we end up talking about family, it bring, and I said earlier, we bring up issues. You know, and so you say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't like my sister. I've got issues with my sister. I haven't talked to my sister in 20 years. There's, you know, these broken things. But here Paul is trying to say, you know, this is the way that the body, the extended family of the body of Christ should function together. This is the idea. This is what we should be working towards. And so what, what he's getting at with these familial terms is that, again, in a real way, we're family. And N.T. Wright says, the church is the renewed family of God in the Messiah and in the power of the Holy Spirit, and its family life must reflect that fact. Just because we in the modern West live in nuclear families with, for the most part, most of us, rather small contact with other fellow Christians, certainly by comparison with the early church, that shouldn't blind us to the reality of the extended family that Paul was dealing with. And so whether the church is Ephesus 2,000 years ago, whether the church is at Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, whether it's Corinth, whether it's 
a small rural church, a downtown church, a suburban mega church, whether it's a house church, whether it's a, a liturgical church, a low church, a uh, all the smoke and fog and all the big speakers with lots of music and lots of loudness, a simple church, a conservative church, a progressive church, an evangelical church, a mainline church. It doesn't matter. The church is faced with the task to live as an extended family together, to share life, to mutually encourage and support one another, to care for one another, and to care for another, not just like, hey, I hope you're doing well today. Like, it means to really be in the place that you provide material help, you provide financial help, you sit with someone and their pain becomes your pain. Their joy becomes your joy. When they, they win, you win. When they lose, you lose with them. If your mother was in pain, you would feel it. If your father was in pain, you would feel it. If your brother is in pain, you would feel it. If your sister is joyful, you probably would be joyful. And so the question becomes, what is God saying to you and I as the church, as the extended family that we call Veritas, what might God be calling you into to live as an extended family? And so that's one, one of the questions we're going to talk about, is how do we live as an oikos? How do we live as extended family? And then he makes this transition right after that familial thing. And then he begins to talk about widows. It's an interesting conversation that he talks about widows. He says, give proper recognition to these, those widows who are really in need. See, that's, that, you gotta, that's where you start. Widows who are really in need. Because he lays out couple different kinds of widows and what you're supposed to do to each kind of widow, if you will. It says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. 
Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now, in the first century, in this context, there is no social safety net. None. And so, who are the most vulnerable in that time and in that place are widows. This is the most vulnerable population. Widows who wouldn't have any family, if their husband died, if they didn't have children, they were going to lose everything. There was no safety net for them, no way of supporting themselves, and so they would face utter destitution. And so Paul is, as I said, he breaks down widows in three different categories. The first one is widows who are older, who have nobody to support them. So their husband had died. They didn't have any children, grandchildren, or anybody else to provide for them. That's the first one. Then the second one is ones who, uh, they were younger, who should remarry. And then the last one is widows who did have a safety net, who had uh, children, who had sons and daughters and grandchildren to support them. Those are the three kinds of widows that Paul is addressing right now. And if you, in in a way, what's Paul getting at again in this text is saying that when you see these needs, these vulnerable populations, when you begin to see these older ladies, remember what they said, treat older ladies as mothers, then you begin to say, wait, I can't let this person struggle. I can't let them go destitute. I need to help them. We, the church, need to get behind them and support them. And so the first one, again, is the, one, is the women who are over 60, who have no support, no safety net, no family, other than the family called the church. And Paul makes it clear right then and right there, this is what we're supposed to do as a church. Come under them, beside them, walk with them. Help them not to be vulnerable to destitution. And then he says, if you have a widow in your family, and he means like flesh and blood family, like this is your mother, this is your grandmother, it's your responsibility to look after them, to walk with them. And then lastly, he calls, he says, young widows, hey, young widows, like go get remarried, look after your children. Don't give the devil a foothold. What we find is in this text a couple issues that kind of probably would arise in this part of the text. Again, the first one is finding out who are the bona fide recipients of the church's help. He was pretty clear there must have been a widow's list. Who do I put on the list? 
Do I just put all widows on the list? He said, no. Women who are 60 and over, who've had good reputation with the church, washed the church's feet, done hard work of parenting, is in the community and is well respected by the community. These are bona fide recipients of the church's generosity. They were supposed to be active parts of the oikos, of the extended family. Because then they, you have given so much to us. The least we can do is to walk with you in this part. Secondly, the widows who can be supported by other means should be supported by other means. If you have a mother who has pa- who had had her husband pass away, but she is your family, that's your first responsibility. Don't just say, hey, "Nope, church should do it." I'm I'm out of it. No, that's not what he's saying. We don't leave them without the support. N.T. Wright says this. Paul clearly sees being enrolled as a widow as a commitment to make the Christian community one's primary family, something few of us outside monastic communities have ever thought of. And then, and thirdly, Paul is saying that younger women should remarry. Because I think too often what happens is he's saying is if you don't remarry, you just have all this time. And then... What is like the, uh, the idle hands or the devil's playground, I think? I, I think there's like one of those statements. They become gossipers and busybodies. They're in everybody else's things because they don't have anything to do. They're not productive members of the community. He says, get married, have children, be a part of the community. And lastly, Paul, again, comes back to this and says, hey, look. If you have a safety net, if you have family, they should be the first ones to look after the widow. Let the church focus on the widows who have no support, who have no safety net. So the question becomes, as I look around, I don't see any older widows. I don't see any younger widows. I don't see any widows who have families. I, I don't, unless you telling me something I don't know. What does that say? Because we realize, this is super contextual, this is something that Paul was seeing, Timothy was probably saying, hey, this is going on. What do I do? How, how do we handle this? So what does it mean for you and I sitting here today when he's talking all about these widows? Well, let's just make it. It's about those who are most vulnerable. Who are most vulnerable in our world? Who are the people that God says, look, as the body, you are to come beside, to love and to embrace and to walk beside. To look at that person and say, you know what? We're your family. You need a family right now. We're we're it. And And that doesn't mean just outside the, the church. It could mean inside the church. And it doesn't just mean, like, get your mind off of widows. It doesn't just mean, well, it's got to be women. No. Like, who is vulnerable? Who is in need? Who has struggles? And how 
Do we as an oikos, as an extended family, be family together? And so how do we support each other in the midst of the struggles? How do we celebrate together in the midst of the successes? When one part suffers, they all suffer. When one part rejoices, they all rejoice. It's just, it's that. It's that idea of being extended family. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to live as an extended family together here today in Lancaster. Um, And so we're going to unpack what does it look like, who's most vulnerable, and what the Lord might be saying to us today.